I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode, I sit down with Joe Mansueto, Executive Chairman and Founder of Morningstar, to discuss how his love of investing led to the founding of Morningstar, how he thinks about investing in the city of Chicago now, owning a sports team, Ted Lasso, and more. Hi, Joe. Thanks for being here today. Hello. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's so good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on this new podcast, The Executives Exchange. We're really excited to talk to you about your entrepreneurial path, your civic leadership, and Chicago. So we'll jump right in. The Midwest, as we all know, is in your DNA. You're originally from Munster, Indiana. I'm just curious, did you come to Chicago much when you were a child or a teenager, or was your first real exposure when you came to the University of Chicago as a college student? You know, What was your thinking of Chicago when you were growing up? No, we used to come uh, occasionally as from my various earliest memories, you know, probably from third grade on, we'd take the South Shore train from mm-hmm. Hammond, Indiana yep. up to Randolph Street and, uh, you know, go to Marshall Fields at the holiday time and have lunch at the Walnut Room and, yeah. you know, go to the top of what I, you know, the Prudential Building, the small one was the tallest building in Chicago when I was a kid. I point that out to my kids today and they crack up. You can barely tell it's a tall building. Right. So yeah, we've been coming downtown, um, you know, ever since I was small and it was one of the great things about being in Munster, Indiana, it was close enough to the city where you could avail yourself of all the wonderful cultural things of the city. And we took advantage of that. Yeah, we did too as kids. I remember it being such a treat to come downtown. So we both attended University of Chicago. Right now, I'm the president of the alumni board. What led you to University of Chicago? So when I was in high school, I graduated from Munster High School. And as I was looking for colleges, I was really struck by the University of Chicago's approach to education. Uh, as you know, they, there's a common core mm-hmm. where for the first two years, no matter what your major is, you basically take the same courses. And it's a broad-based liberal arts education. So you get the physical sciences, social sciences, humanities, arts. Uh, and I wanted that kind of a broad-based education because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I wanted this foundational education. And Chicago seemed to articulate its philosophy very well. And so it really resonated with me. I came up, I visited it as a junior, spent a night with some students and just loved it. Yeah. And that's how that came to pass. You obviously have a strong entrepreneurial spirit. I'm curious, did that start in Munster, Indiana when you were a child? You know, did you, were you the kind of kid that had lemonade stands and was doing things like that? Or did something happen later on that really sparked your interest in launching a business? I would say it came a little later, probably in college, but I always liked to take on projects as a kid, even as a very young kid. You know, whether it was building a model airplane or putting on a theater production in high school, And business to me was similar to those kinds of activities. And I did not grow up in a business household. My dad was a doctor. My mom was a nurse. And so I was just very curious about business, you know, how it worked. And I started to, you know, as a consumer, you know, I'd be in businesses. And I was just wondering how how this all worked. And so when I was in college, um, I started to take on some entrepreneurial activities 
just to pick up some spare money. And mm-hmm. um, I was just curious again about business. And, and so whether it was a uh, soda service from my college dorm room, the room 607 soda service, at the Shoreland <laughs> dorm, you know, and in the lobby today, we have orange crush, you know, and uh-huh. you, know, you get to meet everybody in the dorm and you make some money. And it was just a lot of fun or uh, renting a lot and selling Christmas trees. You know, our, my slogan was fine pines and awesome blossoms. <laughs> and, you know, just have fun with it and make some money. And then I found, you know, it gave me a confidence that, okay, I, I could take something from an idea in my head uh, and make it a reality at a very mm-hmm. small scale. And I discovered I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a creative um, activity. And then I liked satisfying a consumer. When you sell a Christmas tree to a young family and the kids are beaming, it just makes you feel good. And so if you can satisfy a consumer need, um, I think that's, you know, in some ways a very noble thing to figure out how to do that, assemble resources uh, and make, you know, the world a, a little better place. So did you jump right into entrepreneurship or did you go get a traditional job first? So... What I did was uh, at when I was at Chicago, uh, the University of Chicago, as you know, it's a liberal arts-based education. It doesn't really prepare you for any for any um, career. And so when I was a junior, uh, third-year student, I applied to the business school. They had a program then, which they've since done away with, uh, called the Professional Option Program, where you apply to one of the professional schools. If you were admitted, then in your fourth year in the college, Mm-hmm. You were both in the professional school and you got credit for your undergrad yeah. um, requirements. And so when it was when I was a third year student, I was thinking about a career and I thought I'd like to be an entrepreneur. I'd like to start a business. So I went to business school with that in mind and uh, and learned about all the disciplines of starting a, a business. And then I went and I worked for a few years before starting Morningstar. What did you do in your first job? So uh, if you really want to go into more detail, uh, right after I finished school, I started uh, a business with my college roommate, who's still a good friend of mine today and business school roommate. And he was doing some things for some Chicago radio stations that we thought we could do across the country. And so for a year, I helped him get this business off the ground. And again, to see what a real business, not a soda mm-hmm. service or Christmas trees, you know, putting that together was all about. But then radio was his passion. It wasn't mine. Yeah. So after a year, I left that. And I had come across um, a guy who's uh, well known today, but pretty obscure back then, uh, who really inspired me to pursue a career in investing. And that was Warren Buffett. Oh, wow. And I read his annual reports. And even though I went to the University of Chicago Business School, learned about efficient markets, the message I learned was fire your stock analysts. You can't beat the market. So it didn't excite me about investing. But I had read about Buffett, got me very excited about investing. And so then I went and I worked as a stock analyst at Harris Associates here in Chicago, Mm -hmm. a terrific asset management firm. Um, You know, those people are still friends of mine today. I have a lot of admiration for what Harris Associates does. And, um, you know, I spent a year there as a stock analyst. Yeah. So then what happened? I think it was 1984 or so, still in your 20s. You decided to start Morningstar. What what triggered that? How did you do it? 
So one of the things I used to do to teach myself about stock analysis was to write away to smart money managers who I admired, people like John Templeton, Michael Price of Mutual Series, and I'd get their shareholder reports of the funds that they ran, and I'd look at their portfolios and, you know, John Templeton is buying HSBC. Why is he doing that? I'd go research HSBC, and it was a way to teach myself about stock investing. And then as I had all these mutual fund reports on my kitchen table, I thought, there's a lot of great information in these. Somebody ought to compile these into a compendium. One, so I wouldn't have to make these calls you know, every <laughs> quarter to get the reports, but two, because it could be very helpful to investors. And so it got me looking at the mutual fund industry. The firm I was at, Harris Associates, had a mutual fund, the Acorn Fund, uh, run by Ralph Wanger, a really good fund. And so I had some inside perspective on the mutual fund industry. I could see it was growing, uh, yet there weren't a lot of sources of information for investors to make good investment decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I still had these entrepreneurial aspirations. And so I decided to combine my love of investing with my entrepreneurial desires. And that really led to the formation of Morningstar and really identifying the need that individuals were basically flying blind. They were making mutual fund decisions based on just one line of total return data. Mm -hmm. And as a stock analyst, I had all this data to make an investment decision. Charts going back decades, fundamental data going back decades, analyst reports. And then as funded investors, they had nothing. And so I really wanted to bring this rigorous, comprehensive fundamental analysis that stock investors had to bring that to fund investors to help them make smarter investment decisions. So you saw a market need combined with a passion. Radio wasn't your passion, but this was your passion, and that's sort of the secret sauce, right? If you can figure that out, um, you can have a real shot as an entrepreneur. That's right. I think you know you, you need to find something you're passionate about and then identify a market need. Right. And then have the perseverance to kind of stick with it through thick and thin and you know achieve something. But yeah, you've got to be passionate about it because it's going to take decades to really build a significant enterprise. So you better love it. Yeah. So for all the aspiring entrepreneurs who are listening, were there one or two crucial things you did in those early years that really set you on the course for success? Anything for them to learn from? You know, I there are many ways, you know, to get to heaven. And mm -hmm. uh, the way I did it might not be for everybody, but I did a bootstrap startup. So I just cleared out my living room, bought four PCs, and started at it, creating a database. So I kept my costs very low. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I could keep my costs very low, I can hang on long enough to succeed. So back then, I don't think I could have raised money, you know, as a 27-year-old. Mm -hmm. Today, you, that's different. But back then, yeah. it was, you know, different. And so, um, you know, I think- well, Today, that might be cost, old, right? <laughs> that might be old, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think keeping your costs down, you know, and- you know, so that you can hang on long enough. A lot of entrepreneurs raise a lot of money and they run through it rather quickly. Yeah. And so I think you learn, even doing these small ventures like soda and Christmas trees, you know, how to turn a profit, Yeah. kind of watching a nickel. And so I think you need a bit of that street smart to kind of, you know, be able to hang on long enough and not read, you know, the media about, what Google is doing and spending all this money and you can get in over your head. And 
all of a sudden you're you're out of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the key thing, I think, as we said earlier, you've got to find something you're passionate about. Um, and hopefully that marries with a market need and then just get started. And I always advise people to, rather than jump in, go work for somebody before, if you're a young person, go yeah. work for somebody else before you start a business. The rules to making money, it's better to learn those on somebody else's dime. Mm-hmm. I learned a tremendous amount as an analyst at uh, the investment management firm right. that really helped me um, as I started Morningstar. So go work for somebody else for a little bit. Um, but don't, don't wait too long. Don't wait till you're 50, you know, yeah. hopefully, you know, after you get enough experience, you know, get going. Right. Well, we all know that the predominant mantra in entrepreneurship now, you know, was fail fast. Now learn fast, right? Don't just fail fast, but learn fast. Did you have a learn fast experience in those first few years? Well, you know, I think I learned in the radio business, you know, I think my partner then, my friend had a different style. And so I learned some things, you know, not to do, I think. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, I think we were kind of running it pretty tight in terms of finances. And I didn't really want to get close to that. So I was pretty disciplined about whatever money was coming in, spend less. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Pretty simple rule. Uh, But to be more conservative financially, to make sure we could hang on. Uh, And then just to pour yourself into the product um, and keep improving it. And I think in the early days, we might not have had a perfect product, but our audience could see that we were always improving it at a rapid clip. And so they stuck with us. Mm-hmm. So the key thing to me is to kind of get out in the marketplace, engage with your customers, let them tell you how to make it better, mm-hmm. and then keep iterating. But to get out there quickly, it doesn't have to be perfect, um, but to get out there and then start learning. Because you know, I think a lot of you know big projects gets stalled. It's so big. It never gets done. It goes mm-hmm. on for years. And I've always been, you know, I'd rather kind of, you know, get it out there quickly, even though it's a bit chaotic, tumultuous, yeah. uh, and get going. Yeah. So in 2017, you transitioned to executive chairman. How did you know it was time? I turned 60. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, a couple of years prior to that, when I was about 58, um, I told my board, Morningstar is a public company. We have a, a pretty independent vocal board. I said, you know, when I turned 60, I'd like to transition to executive chairman. Uh, you know, I've been doing this over three decades, love Morningstar, but there's other things I want to do in life. And I'd like to get some of my time back. You know, being a CEO of a, a large public company, it's pretty all consuming. It takes a lot mm-hmm. of time. You know, we're in 30 countries around the world. It's a lot of travel all fun. But again, I wanted to do some other things. So I gave my board a couple years notice. At first they said, what are you thinking? You know, 60 is the new 40. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can work a lot longer than that. Uh, but, you know, I kind of stuck to my guns and I wanted to do this. So we identified a successor, worked a couple years on a succession plan that went very smoothly. Um, I'm super fortunate to have a great successor in Kunal Kapoor, yeah. who's the CEO of Morningstar today. And if I didn't have a good successor, I wouldn't have done it at 60. Yeah. But it was really predicated on making sure the company was in good hands, uh, which it was. And so then when I turned 60, um, you know, I stepped down in, in my 60th year. Yeah. But you certainly haven't slowed down. So now you're running your family office, right, and making a series of investments. How do you approach that as a CEO 
Is it different than how you were approaching being CEO of a publicly traded company? You know, it's similar and different. I mean, the scale is enormously different. I mean, my yeah. family office has five people. Yeah. Morningstar has 8,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but really, so I've review gone time is easier. <laughs> yeah, much easier. So I've gone from really doing one singular thing, Morningstar, to doing a portfolio of things. Yeah. And uh, I love it because I've got some time then to, you know, I'd like to spend more time working out, taking care of my health, spending time with my family. But I've got a portfolio of projects that all of them are passions of mine. And I like to spend my time and resources on passions, things that I really enjoy and where I can make some impact. But, you know, how I run the little family office is in many ways similar to Morningstar. You know, I treat people the same. I like to hire really good people and have a very trusting environment, give them autonomy. Um, you know, it's all very open. Morningstar is an open plan office. There's no private offices. All the conference rooms are glass walled. So very transparent, meant to facilitate collaboration, communication. And my little family office is, is very similar. Mm -hmm. So there's some similarities, but again, the scope is enormously different. So you already answered what was going to be my next question, because your portfolio is quite diverse and possibly eclectic, right? You've bought some magazines, you've bought a hotel, you bought a soccer club. And I was curious what did hang it all together and its passions of yours. These are things that you want to be investing in and have as part of your portfolio. That's exactly right. You know, um, I don't want to spend time at this stage of my life on things I don't yeah. like or want to do. And so they better be passions and things I'm excited about. And the way I view it is I've got five, uh, I call them verticals in my mm -hmm. family office. I mean, certainly Morningstar is one right. very important one. But as you touched on, media. So I have Inc., Fast Company, some newspapers. Uh, I have real estate. So things like the Wrigley Building, the Belden Stratford, mm -hmm. a number of real estate projects, uh, sports. I'm a big believer in the power of sports to bring people together, and mm -hmm. uh, it's focused on soccer. And then the last vertical is venture investing. I like to work with other entrepreneurs. I have a portfolio of probably about 25 companies and uh, try and help those entrepreneurs succeed. And, uh, and that's a lot of fun too. And then I have a foundation, maybe a sixth vertical on the nonprofit side. Yeah. So owning a sports team is quite unique. Curious, did you have a passion for soccer in particular, or you really liked the idea of a team and bringing people together? Could it have been a variety of sports or was soccer really your passion? Uh, it had to be soccer. Yeah. Um, I'm just very passionate about soccer. Uh, I love the game. I was, unfortunately, did not play growing up in Munster. It was not an option mm -hmm. uh, when I was growing up. Uh, it was only football, basketball, baseball. Uh, but my kids started to play. Yeah. You know, I, I coached at the AYSO level, I'm very proud to say, <laughs> where <laughs> I got introduced to the game, you know, with little kids running around. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of one chapter ahead of the kids in the rule book on how to play the game. And... Uh, but I, you know, they started to play first at AYSO level, then at the club level, then at high school. I just fell in love with the game. I think it's a great sport for kids. It's very aerobic. They're running around, learning life lessons. And, uh, and then I started to watch professionally, um, both yeah. in the U.S. with MLS, uh, in Europe. 
And I just think it's a wonderful sport, again, both for the development of kids, but also as a spectator, you know, it's 90 minutes of nonstop action. Yeah. And I think it fits very well into the modern lifestyle, whereas many other sports, you know, they're three, four hours. Yeah. You know, there's not as much action going on. And I think soccer, a global game, is much more thrilling. And so I wanted to get involved in soccer. So it was very much focused on that. And I don't have an interest in investing in other sports teams yeah. that aren't in soccer. So it's very much soccer specific. Have you seen the show Ted Lasso? I have. It's terrific. I love it. He's so yeah. good. Yeah, this um, kind of seemingly naive American football coach goes to the Premier League in the UK yeah. to manage a mediocre team. And, yeah. you know, you have to love his irrepressible optimism. I know. And, I love and it. basic humanity that ultimately wins over a very difficult situation. I know. know. And not that I don't think it would have been successful at any time. It's a great show. But for it to have been released, you know, at the height of the pandemic, I felt yeah. it was so beautiful to watch, right? The optimism, the humanity, like I just walked away from every episode saying, thank you. Like I need this right now, you know, this infusion of that, the hope and positivity. And I think it just came at the perfect time for what we needed. If you haven't watched it, everyone listening, highly recommend. I think it's on Apple TV. It's on Apple TV. Yeah. I would recommend it as well. You're right. That optimism during this pandemic year, especially important. Yeah. And <laughs> we could all use a little inner Ted Lasso. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, really believe, you know, his, his whole inspiration <laughs> thing. So good. Um, is there anything that's uniquely different about the business of running a sports team, different than all of the other businesses that you run? Yeah, it is different. Um, you know, it's... Um, it has really three legs to the stool, as I think of it. I mean, it's got the business side, which is like mm -hmm. all other businesses. It's a, a P&L. Um, but it also has the sporting side, which mm -hmm. is very interesting. You know, how do you select players? How do you develop players? On-field strategy. So that's different. Uh, but also what's different is the civic side. And I didn't really have a deep appreciation for this, but mm -hmm. how a sports team really connects into a city in a very, very deep way and how passionate people are about their team where they'll, they'll tattoo the crest of the club on their, their body somewhere. Right. You know, they're, they're just that, um, you know, enthusiastic a fan, but it just connects to the city in a deep way. And, you know, you, you go out to all 77 neighborhoods of Chicago um, and we have a big juniors program. So mm -hmm. unlike other sports, we have to develop our own talent. So it begins with a very large juniors program, working with thousands of families up to the academy, the most serious, you know, players, mm -hmm. and then on up to the first team. And so, but I love the way it connects deep into the city. You know, it's important to the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot. It's important to Governor Pritzker. Right. And you know, it's, I think Chicago, part of the reason I bought into the team was I think Chicago deserves a world-class soccer team. Yeah. You know, it exists in Seattle, Portland, Atlanta. It doesn't exist in Chicago. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the team was in a, a suburb, not accessible to most people in the metro area. Uh, it wasn't performing well. And so I really wanted to kind of bring it into the city, you know, put it on free on-air television, WGN, yeah. people yeah. could see it and uh, get them into the stands to experience it because it's a great sporting experience. And I think Chicago, 
you know, we'll be a slightly better city with a terrific soccer team. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. And you are one of the biggest names in the city in terms of diverse philanthropic ventures, right? It's no surprise that you are also motivated through a civic engagement component of all of this. And so I just want to highlight some of the things you've done. The University of Chicago Library is a great example. You know, you and your wife, Rika, pledged $25 million to the expansion of the, the reg, as those of us who went to Chicago know it, <laughs> um, and the new wing of the library, and designed by Chicago-based architect Helmut Jan in 2011. I think that was so about 10 years ago you did that. Yep. And what inspired? Yeah, that was a fun project. You know, yeah. Bob, Bob Zimmer came to me, and they had a beautiful design for a library, but not the funding. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we supplied the funding, but it was Helmut's genius to come up with that design of yeah. putting the library basically underground with a glass dome on top. But we wanted to give back to U Chicago, where both my wife and I attended. And so that was a, a, a fun, a really nice gift that we yeah. enjoyed uh, providing. And putting on my other hat, you know, as president of the alumni board, just thank you for that. Really, really incredible. Um, tying that back to sports. So did you, you probably do know this. I didn't know this, that the library was actually built on the old football field. Stag Field. Yeah. 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 There's still a little monument to where the first nuclear reaction took place uh-huh. just to the west of Regenstein Library. But yeah, yeah. That's where Stag Field used to be exactly. And it was underneath that. Right. Uh, that's very classic old school University of Chicago, right? Tear down the sports stadium to build a library. Um, <laughs> Shows priorities. I know, right? So you're doing a lot of important work helping solve some of the challenges facing Chicago. You have a charter school. You've invested in the terminal. Can you tell us about some of these projects too and why they're so important? Yeah, those are a couple of interesting ones. Um, you know, first we do have a charter school on the south side at 47th in California, uh, Mansueto High School, mm-hmm. which is managed by the, the Noble Street folks who do an awesome job managing uh, charter schools. And we toured a bunch of the Noble schools and we're just so impressed, you know, the kids in uniforms and, you know, taking low income kids uh, and the outcomes are just incredible. So mm-hmm. at our high school, 100% of the kids go on to college you know, the students love it, the parents love it, and it's a great environment. We built a new building uh, down there for the first development in that Brighton Park neighborhood in a long time. And so that's just been very fulfilling, but I'm a big believer in charter schools and school choice, providing some competition, I think will lift the education yeah. for everyone. And so that's one, that's what that is uh, about. Uh, the other one you referenced, the terminal, is in Humboldt Park. And this is redeveloping an old factory. It used to make locomotive headlamps <laughs> uh, back in the day. And actually, the lighting at Soldier Field, the uplights of the columns are, were made there. Um, it has since gone into disrepair. And, uh, and so 
we purchased uh, three buildings, about 250,000 square feet of space. And we want to convert that into creative office space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, techies, creative folks, you know, like working with exposed brick, high ceilings, windows. Yeah. So we'll make it that kind of space. But the idea is to help revitalize, you know, a part of Chicago that could use some investment, Humboldt Park. Right. I think has got a good future and it aligns with Mayor Lightfoot's initiative of developing the, the West and South sides. Uh, and so again, it's another way to help give back to Chicago, but it also aligns with an interest I have in architecture and urban reuse, kind of preserving the past, these wonderful old buildings. Uh, so it's fun on a number of levels, that project. Yeah. I want to talk about your passion for ar- architecture just for a moment, because not everyone listening may know that you are a big architecture and design buff and actually played into how when you were growing Morningstar. Can you tell us a little bit more about your love of architecture and how that fits in? Yeah, design and architecture um, you know, are, are just passions of mine. And yeah. you know, design has been very important to Morningstar in its yeah. development. So at, at Morningstar, we say we have three core skills, research, technology, and design. And that might be obvious today, design, but 30 years ago, people would scratch their heads. Why right. design? Right. And, you know, within Morningstar, design is not only making things look attractive, but it's about information hierarchy. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you take all this data and make sense of it? And so design is about problem solving. And mm-hmm. how do you do that with data and then present it in a very aesthetically engaging manner? And so, you know, I like things that are well-designed, whether it's buildings or products. Uh, and so, yeah, I just, you know, have a, a real interest in it. And, you know, if I'm traveling on business, um, you know, I'll go into an art museum. If I'm in uh-huh. Amsterdam, go to the Rijks Museum. If I'm in uh-huh. London, go to the Tate. New York, go to the Met. And I've always just been a, a fan of the fine arts and things that are well-designed and put together. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh, how you present information and those Tufty books are just so beautiful to look through. I mean, they're really a work of art. Yeah. He's, he's the best. We're huge fans of Edward Tufty. Yeah. You know, we've had him come and give seminars, you know, or send our staff to his seminars. But uh, if you don't know Edward Tufty, you should get, you know, the visualization of quantitative data. Yep. He's got some great books about that and he inspires us at Morningstar. Yeah. So we're giving everyone homework. Watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> you didn't know that there was going to be homework on this podcast. <laughs> Two good assignments. Yeah. So as a person who cares deeply about this city and you live in the city and you are civically engaged and trying to do the call to action of an equitable economic recovery of the city, what would you like to see more of from the business community to really help propel us forward? Yeah, I think there's a number of things. You know, I'd love to see the business community really work with our political leaders, I would say, in um, three broad areas. You know, first is um, Illinois and city finances. You know, with Illinois and Chicago's robust economy, you think we'd be at the top of the, the list of all the states, but we're at the bottom. You know, Illinois has, as you know, the worst credit ratings uh, among all the states. Uh, huge unfunded pension liabilities, big deficits, um, and it's due to, to mismanagement. You know that shouldn't be. We've got a great economy. Um, you know the Better Government Association, the BGA, did a really, I thought, insightful study 
and they looked at units of government. And Illinois has 7,000 units of government. And I saw another study, it's raised it to 8,000 units of government, which is you know, 40, maybe 50% more than the average state. So what does that mean? That means you have a school district managing one school, a park district managing one park. Mm-hmm. And so over the years through, I don't know if it's patronage jobs, we've created too many jobs that don't need to be there. And so I don't think Illinois has a revenue problem. You know, we have among the highest tax rates combined, you know, of, of the states, you know, we're towards the top end, certainly. Uh, we have an expense problem. Mm-hmm. And we need to, you know, right size our, our, our government. Um, and then if we do that, that'll lessen the pension liability, you know, as you have fewer people to provide pensions to. And I also think we ought to move to things like a 401k plan, you know, we've got Cadillac retirement plans for government workers and yes, grandfather those in, but don't exacerbate the problem with new hires as, you know, all of the corporate worlds on 401k plans. In any case, I think the business community can work with political leaders. One in the whole financial area needs a total rework to make Illinois and Chicago stronger. Uh, and then second thing is education. We touched on this a little bit. Um, but, you know, income inequality essentially is rooted in education inequality. Mm-hmm. And what can we do to raise the educational quality for everybody in Chicago? And I think school choice and charter schools are part of the equation to, to yeah. get that done. Um, teacher performance, you know, evaluation of teachers and getting rid of teachers um, who aren't performing is also part of it. So there's a lot I think the business community can do to help, again, work with our politicians to get that done. Uh, And then finally, I would say crime, you know, is a sore point in Chicago, as we all know. And over the summer, I had lunch with uh, David Brown, the head of police, and Mm -hmm. I was just so impressed with uh, with, with him. Yeah, Um, I think he's got a good plan. Uh, coming from Dallas. I think he's experienced. Uh, I remember one of the things he said over lunch is, you know, when he came to Chicago, you know, the police were distributed equally across Chicago, but crime wasn't. Let's put the police where the crime is. I mean, these kind of basic common sense things and, you know, monitoring social media. And so I think he's on the right track. I have a Mm -hmm. lot of confidence uh, in what he's doing. But I think essentially, if you wrap all this together, all these three areas, Illinois and Chicago, you know, we need a plan to compete. You know, we don't exist in a vacuum. We compete with 49 other states Mm -hmm. for residents and for businesses. And what is our plan to compete against Florida and Texas? I think, as you know, over the last decade, Illinois has had net migration out of our state. We rank 49 out of 50 states. Only West Virginia is worse. Mm -hmm. And so people are voting with their feet and they're leaving. So what is our strategy to compete with these other states to attract businesses and jobs and residents? Mm -hmm. And I think the business community can help. And I think the civic committee does a really good job, you know, in this regard. Um, But that's what I'd love to see the business community rally around and support our political leaders in getting, getting that done. Yeah. So thinking about all of this civic engagement, that you are embarking upon and as a business leader and getting involved in these issues. Is this something that you can now turn your focus to given where you're at in your career or thinking about the 
maybe we won't say 27 year old, a couple years in the 30 year old Joe Mansueto building a company. Are there ways that entrepreneurs can also be playing a role in this or do they really need to be focusing on their businesses and this is something to do later? I think entrepreneurs play a huge role in this. Um, they create jobs. You know, most yep. of the jobs in this country are created by small business. And how transformational is that to hire people mm-hmm. and see them grow and develop, um, raise their families? And so having a robust entrepreneurial community in Chicago and in Illinois, I think is huge. And so I'm a big proponent of entrepreneurship. It's why I own Inc. Magazine. Inc. is right. the Bible for entrepreneurs. And so I think entrepreneurs, you know, focusing on their business, growing business, you know, one thing Chicago, Illinois could use is some great growth uh, business success stories. Yeah. You know, we need a Google, uh, a Facebook, an Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have them here as, as much as the coast do. And so I'd love to see kind of the young entrepreneurs, you know, develop a business here and then stick with it. Don't sell mm-hmm. out early, grow it and be a major you know, hirer of talent uh, in Chicago and Illinois. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had Steve Case at the club a few weeks ago, and he was talking about this. And even he, you know, almost sold too early, you know. Um, and there was some pressure from like, oh my gosh, we have this amazing deal. I can't remember what it was, you know, maybe a hundred million or something like that. And he was like, no, we should not sell. Like, <laughs> you know, um, and good thing they didn't sell at a hundred million. But you know, I do think that sometimes that feels like the golden ring, right? Like great, you know, done. I can retire and, and be done. And so really, really holding out and having a supportive community that can really help foster that. Yeah. Chicago's had a number of, you know, case studies in that regard. I mean, U.S. Robotics was a big name in mm-hmm. the tech area, but sold. And yeah, it was great to have him here, but it would have been great if, you know, they'd stuck with it and grown to a large organization. Uh, you know, we've had Groupon, which has done pretty well, and but we need more of those stories. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, not selling out too early, but, you know, sticking with it and, again, really developing it here rather than selling it to a larger firm on one of the coasts. Yeah. I think we do have a really strong infrastructure now supporting this with, you know, 1871 has been around for a while, but everything that P33 is doing, you know, in Chicago yeah. Next, I mean, there's really a great ecosystem around this and all the, you know, new venture challenges and things that are happening in our universities. And you can see- see momentum building. There are a lot of, and even with the rise of the rest, I mean, I did not realize that in his portfolio, there are 10 Chicago companies. Um, so not everyone knows this. So it's starting to tell the story more too. You know, I think there are some great things going on, but we're not necessarily getting, getting the word out. Yeah. I'm an investor in Steve Case's rise of the rest fund. And it's been interesting to watch what he's done. And you're right. There's 10 Chicago companies. Um, and one of them just did a round um, Foxtrot, which is kind of reinventing the convenience store, which is a great story. I know. And I put more money into Foxtrot, even outside of the fund. I'm such a big believer in what Mike Levitiol is doing there. Uh, and so, you know, we need more of those. But there's mm-hmm. some really promising talent here in Chicago that makes me very excited for the, its future. Yeah, me too. So as you look back across the totality of your career, all the things you've done, What are you most proud of? Well, I think I'm most proud of creating uh, an enduring company like Morningstar that will outlive me and be around for a very long time that has helped 
literally millions of people around the world uh, protect and grow their savings and investments. You know, these are funds they can use to put their kids through school and buy a first home and retire comfortably. So I'm really proud about Morningstar, its mission to empower investor success and really what it what it contributes, you know, again, to help make the world a, a better place. So I think that's what I'm most proud of, as well as I think developing, seeing all the talent that we've recruited into Morningstar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a long list of people, Don Phillips and Tao Huang, Martha Budis. You're really just watching them go from college you know, to develop into successful, super talented executives and flourishing careers. And so I'm just, you know, I'm proud of, you know, the friendships I've had and, you know, helping in some way to develop their talents and providing a platform where they can do some really good work. Mm -hmm. And we love talking to people about some of their success habits. I mean, everyone loves to get to know you as a person too, right? Not just as a successful uh, business leader. So a few interesting questions. I'm curious, do you have a morning ritual? Is there something you always do when you first wake up? Yeah. You know, I'm pretty routine oriented as a person, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe uh, boringly so, but uh, actually it's changed a little bit. I think prior to stepping down from Morningstar for decades, I had the same routine where I'd get up at 5.15 in the morning and I'd go run four miles along the lakefront. I'm a big runner. Mm-hmm. And then I'd get back and then, you know, shower and seven o'clock, my kids would start to get up, help make them breakfast, get them off to school. And then once they're off, I go into work. And that was my routine for for many, many years. Since I've stepped down and I have a little more time, I sleep in a little later. I sleep Mm -hmm. at 6.30. (laughs) And now I like a little slower morning. So I make Uh my green tea, you know, I'm reading the newspapers, answering emails. And then, you know, workouts are still a big part of my routine. But now, instead of at 5.15, when it's dark, running along the lakefront, uh, I work out probably between 9 and 10 in the morning when it's yeah. light. Uh, but I still get in my morning run or play tennis or bike. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a little slower today, but it's still pretty much the same schedule. Yeah. Um, uh, so I like, uh, I like a routine. At a much more civilized hour. <laughs> uh, I think so. It's much more relaxed. And it's like, how did I do that for three decades? Right. <laughs> you know, it's uh, once you get used to that pace, it's it'd be hard to go back, I think. Yeah, I know. Did you need a lot of sleep or were you the kind of person that just did not need much sleep? I'm a big believer in sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a great book is Why We Sleep, mm-hmm. uh, about the importance of sleep. And so even when I was, you know, getting up at 5.15, I was always doing my best to get eight hours, worst yeah. case, seven hours. Now I get more like nine hours, sometimes more. And I just love sleep. I'm a great sleeper. I do too. My wife, my wife says sleep. I'll fall asleep before I, in mid-sentence. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I fall asleep within 30 seconds and just sleep like a rock. And I just love it. Yeah. And I feel like it's so important to good health along there alongside diet and exercise. Yeah. I'm the same. These people that claim to get by on five hours, five, six hours, I just don't get it. I am not built that way. Nor am I. (laughs) Do you have a most recommended business book? Something that anyone who asks, you tell them, read this book. Yeah. I've been recommending the same one for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not exactly a book, but it's the 
annual reports of Warren Buffett mm-hmm. to go back and read all of his letters, I think is the best business education that you can get in literary form. Uh, and I just think the lessons there about economic moats, what are your sustainable advantages, businesses that require less capital. There's so many lessons and he does it with enthusiasm, humor, they're fun to read. And so I urge everyone to go back and read those. If you're looking for more contemporary books, uh, a couple that I've read over the past year that I thought were good were Bob Iger's book, uh, Mm -hmm. Light of a Lifetime, uh, his autobiography at Disney, as well as Steve Schwartzman's um, Pursuit of Excellence, I believe it's called, uh, building, you know, his autobiography, building Blackstone. And here you have two different, two leaders, extremely successful, but very different styles and got there in very different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those books were were fascinating. And I would recommend both of those books. Yeah. I mean, you said earlier, there are many roads to heaven, right? It's not a, a single path and a single way to get there. Yeah. I think that's one of the uh, liberating things about leadership. You know, there is no one way to do it. Yeah. The key thing is to be authentic. I mean, you look at one, you know, from George Patton to Mother Teresa, you know, there's a huge spectrum of effective leaders. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be of a certain mold. And uh, as long as you're real and authentic, but there's just many ways to do it. And you don't have to emulate somebody and try and mimic Steve Jobs or right. whoever your leader du jour is, but, you know, be yourself and you can find ways to be effective. I'm a big fan of strength-based leadership for exactly that reason. You know, figure out when, what it is about you in particular, and then lean into that, you know, stop trying to be all of these things that you're not. And think about, I mean, maybe not for you necessarily because you started entrepreneurship early, but for people who are in more traditional corporate America, and I bet they can tell you review after review, it's always the same thing they need to work on. And after, you know, hearing for 10 or 20 years, you really should work on this thing. You know, at some point realize I'm just not good at that thing. And, but here's where I'm great. And I'm going to lean into this. And this is when I shine and I can lead from this place. I couldn't agree more. I think that's one of the things you get with experience and maturity is knowing that you can't be great at everything. Right. And so lean into your strengths, as you say, and then build a team around you. Right. That fills in those deficits. Uh, I'm not great at everything. You know, I am not the best at process. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've always put people who are really good at process around me and I can come up with a product, kind of get it out the door, but institutionalizing that really honing the process. So it's very smooth. Mm-hmm. That's not my strong suit. Uh, but I've always had people around me who are really good at that. Yeah. Uh, and so to be, you know, self-aware, you know, again, about your strengths and weaknesses yeah. is something everybody can get better at, but then build a team around you. That's complimentary. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being here today. You have some great lessons for everyone listening. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Hey, I really enjoyed the conversation. Great questions. And um, so thank you very much for the invitation to be here. Yeah. And happy spring. Happy spring. I think all Chicagoans appreciate spring after our very cold winters. Uh, I know. It's got to be the favorite season of Chicagoans. We were recording this during a week where we've had a couple of 60-degree days in early March, which are always (laughs) such a tease. I've lived here my whole life, as are you. And 
every year I think, oh, maybe this will be the year. I don't know why I don't accept the fact that 92% of the time it snows in April. (laughs) But yet it's (laughs) eternal hope, right? Like Ted Lasso, it's just eternal hope that maybe this is the year that, you know, spring will come early. I hope so. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Joe. Take care. Thank you very much. That's all for today's episode of The Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.